Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, senior writer, Jonathan Strickland with HowStuffWorks.com. And on many episodes of Tech Stuff, I like to look at companies that are decades old or even more than a century old in some cases. But this time, I'm going to take a look at a company that just turned 10 not too long ago. And I'm talking about Fitbit. And really, I'm going to focus both on the company itself and the technology it creates. So you're going to get both kind of a history and evolution of the company, but also how does that technology actually work? It's kind of marrying two different styles of tech stuff in one delicious tech stuff package of goodness. So this story begins back in 2007, and that is when two guys, one named James Park and one named Eric Friedman, decided that they were going to launch a company with the intent to produce fitness trackers, essentially a pedometer on steroids, something that could give lots of uh, feedback to a person uh, who was interested in getting fit. But to be fair, all stories really have more of a preamble than that, right? It's not just, hey, today we decided to make a company. You have to figure out, well, what led up to that? Well, James Park uh, attended Harvard. He was studying computer science, but he dropped out. Uh, He didn't actually graduate from Harvard. Uh, He didn't earn a degree there. After dropping out, he worked for uh, the company Morgan Stanley, and he worked there for about a year. And then Eric Friedman, he was actually at Yale. He got a graduate and postgraduate degrees, actually, from Yale. He was uh, studying computer science there. And the two of them co-founded a company called Epissi Technologies. And I'm guessing you probably never heard of it because it didn't last very long. Uh, their focus was to create products to facilitate business-to-business transactions. So, in other words, um, your ordinary consumers or customers would never really come into contact with this particular company. It wasn't marketing stuff for the average consumer. This was for big companies and the transactions they make with each other. Very different world than just going to a store and buying a product, right? Venture capitalists invested a couple of million dollars in this technology. However, uh, the company just never found its footing. It eventually failed. And Park said that he felt that his inexperience in large part contributed to that failure, but that the failure itself served as a very valuable learning experience for him and for Friedman, and that they were able to take that negative experience and learn from it and attempt something new. So there might have been some valuable but harsh lessons learned at that point. Anyway, the two of them and a couple of other alumni from uh, Epesi Technologies decided to go on an entirely different direction with a brand new company. They created a new venture called Wind Up Labs. And this time they were taking aim at online photo editing and sharing using peer-to-peer technology. So this happened around 2002. Uh, they got to work developing the tools you would need to do editing work online and to use this peer-to-peer technology to facilitate it. Uh, and it was successful enough for larger companies to actually take notice of them. And one of those larger companies was CNET. So you're probably familiar with CNET. They have a lot of different uh, uh, branches. The one that I'm familiar with is their website with their reviews and their technology news. I know a couple of people who work there, uh, but they also do other stuff as well. And one of the things they wanted to invest in was this photo editing suite. So they, they acquired Windup Labs. They actually made a bid and then took ownership of the company. And both Park and Friedman went on to work for CNET, uh, becoming heads of various departments within CNET. And they became further entrenched in the world of technology. Flash forward to 2006. Another big company released a brand new product that got both Park and Friedman kind of excited. Something that they had not really seen before that they felt had a lot of value. That company was a little company called Nintendo. And the product was the Wii video game console. Uh, Really, they were very interested in the Wii controllers, the Wii motes. 
because they had all these motion sensors in them. We were now entering into an era where these motion sensors were getting very small and relatively inexpensive, so you could incorporate them into totally new types of technology. You know, before they were larger, they were more expensive, they were limited in what you could do with them, but now because manufacturing processes had improved and you're looking at the economies of scale, they were suddenly a component that you could fit in other stuff. And we started seeing this across all sorts of different products, including smartphones. We started seeing those kind of technologies incorporated there. Well, they thought that this Wiimote motion sensor technology was really revolutionary, but they thought this is a home console. What if we could take this capability and put it into a more portable device and maybe it has a different aim than video games. And that got them thinking and eventually they came to this idea of a fitness tracker that now that you could get accelerometers and other types of sensors to a small enough form factor and make them cheap enough, you could pair them with some microprocessors and have a really robust activity tracker. So... They decided that this would leave pedometers in the dust. It would set a, a new market, and they left CNET in 2007 to form a new company, and they called it Fitbit. Now, when they made this company, they didn't have any products to show off yet. They had not built anything. They hadn't designed anything. They just had an idea. They invested their own money, and they also had friends and family and, and former coworkers and former clients also invested in their uh, early startup, and they raised about $400,000, which originally they thought would be enough to get them to the point where they could bring a product to market. Later fundraising efforts got them further once they realized that $400,000 was not going to be enough, but that was a little bit further down the line. They had a long way to go before they actually had a physical product they could show off. Their ideas sound sounded really good. They were really sound ideas, but neither co-founder had any experience in the manufacturing world. So neither of them knew anything about product development or actually taking an idea and making a physical thing out of it. And as it turns out, that's really hard to do. They had to make a working prototype in order to show it off to some potential investors and also potential customers. So the original Fitbit prototype didn't look very special. It was uh, some circuitry in a little wooden box. I think it was even made of balsa wood. The idea seemed really special, though, and Park and Friedman were determined to make it work. So they needed to develop the product that could be lightweight because you wanted to be able to wear it on your body. They wanted it to be very energy efficient because you don't want to have to recharge it constantly. They wanted to aim for a price point of around $99 in uh, U.S. dollars, that is. The original Fitbit tracker that they eventually developed was a clip-on device. You could clip it on a pocket or a lot of the ladies would clip it on a bra strap or something along those lines. Um, and it was kind of like a high-tech clothespin almost. So it had a, a very small OLED display. Uh, you know, organic LED display. And that could show you how many steps you took. Give you a little indicator. It had little footprints on it, too. I'm looking at the camera that I'm talking to. I'm live streaming this particular episode, and I'm acting like it's actually another person right there. So that's interesting. Uh, but at any rate, the this little screen could show you the number of steps you took. And it, it also had a Bluetooth low-energy transmitter incorporated in the device in order to send information to a syncing station, uh, syncing as in synchronization, not as in syncing under the water. And you would plug that into a computer. So your device would sync whenever you got within a certain range, uh, and it would do so multiple times over the course of a day. So maybe every like 15 to 20 minutes it would update. And then you could view stats on your computer screen. Later on, when smartphones became ubiquitous and uh, a lot of apps were developed for the Fitbit, you could offload that to a smartphone and just use a Bluetooth connection between a device and your smartphone to send that information. But either way, the, the point was you could then view more robust information on a dashboard, either on your computer or later on on your smartphone, 
and it would give you a little bit better of an idea of, of what your activity actually meant. Because a pedometer can tell you roughly how many steps you took. But Fitbit's value proposition was that it could do more than that. So while the Fitbit tracker could estimate the number of steps you were taking, uh, the one of the things that this dashboard could do is uh, estimate how many calories you were burning based upon the nature and duration of the movement you were making. And it did this by collecting information from a three-axis accelerometer, and more on that in a little bit. I'll actually explain how three-axis uh, accelerometers work, or really I should say just say three-axis accelerometers work. And this was really what was compelling about their approach, was that it wasn't just a physical product that they were marketing. It was this whole marriage between software and hardware that together made it a product that people might want and would find compelling uses for, like this whole uh, uh, new industry of activity tracking, quantifying your activity in a way that makes sense so that you could perhaps set goals saying, I want to hit a certain milestone today. Or you could just see what trends were for a week and maybe there were things that you needed to adjust. It was a new idea, really, that you would be able to gather that much information and have it presented to you in a way that made sense. And that, I think, more than just the tracker itself, is what got people really interested. So let's talk about how this hardware works. Uh, we'll begin with what is arguably the most important element in Fitbit technology, which is the three-axis accelerometer. Uh, there are, of course, a lot of other components inside Fitbits, and it also depends upon which Fitbit model you're talking about, because Fitbit offers a ton of different products, and some of them are more simple, and some of them are have all the bells and whistles. Figuratively speaking, I don't think any of Fitbit's current products actually have physical bells or whistles. So I apologize if I got your hopes up. So the three-axis accelerometer is an interesting thing. Uh, it it detects changes in motion. That's what accelerometers do. They, they detect changes in acceleration. And acceleration is a vector quantity, right? It has two components. It has a direction and it has a magnitude. So an accelerometer can detect a change in the direction of motion or a change in the magnitude of motion. And a single axis accelerometer can only tell the difference in a change in direction along one axis. So up and down is an axis. If you have a single axis accelerometer and it's oriented in the up-down position, it can only detect changes in direction that are, that in, impact up or down. It cannot ch detect left or right. So uh, three axis means that there are three axes of directions that you're talking about, essentially up, down, left, right, and forward, backward. So it can detect changes in motion in all of these different axes. The accelerometers inside Fitbits are specific types. They're called MEMS accelerometers, M-E-M-S, and that's actually an acronym. It stands for Microelectromechanical Systems. And this is the fascinating thing to me. These are very, very tiny. They're, they're like, it looks like a regular little microchip, like a microprocessor chip. But they actually have tiny moving parts inside of them. The accelerometers are actually based upon physical motion. Uh, and the name tells you all the basics you need to know. Micro means we're talking wicked small here. Um, that means they're tiny. If you're not from Boston, you don't know what wicked small means. It means tiny. Electro, of course, means that you have some sort of electrical or electromagnetic component to it. And mechanical tells you that, yeah, we're talking about moving parts here. It's just not, you know, not just electrons zipping around. They're actually tiny little move, moving elements to this thing. So let's start with a simple single axis accelerometer. And uh, again, by axis, we're talking about a specific set of directions. Um, this is all with respect to the accelerometer's orientation. So let's say we've got a macro-sized single-axis accelerometer sitting on a table. This is easier to envision. Uh, it can measure accel accelerative forces that are going up or down, but not left or right or forward or backward, because it's, again, single-axis. But uh, the way it works is that you've got a base, 
which in the micro scale we would call a substrate. We'll just say it's the surface of a table in this case. Uh, then you would have a spring, uh, a pretty stiff spring, not not like a slinky, but more like maybe something you would find in a shock absorber. Uh, attached to the spring, you would have some sort of uh, element that would have flat protrusions extending from the sides. So imagine like a cylinder, and along the length of the cylinder, you've got these flat protrusions. They're plates is what they're called. These are movable plates because they're on the cylinder, which itself is on a spring. So any motion on the spring will make the cylinder go up and down, which means the plates, which are attached to the cylinder, will also go up or down. Now, around this cylinder, you've got some fixed plates mounted to a steady frame. So the frame does not move. The frame stays stable. Uh, but those plates sandwich the moving plates. So a moving plate would slide between two fixed plates. And then you apply uh, uh, different voltages to each pair of fixed plates. So you've got a difference in voltage. They're essentially capacitors in this case. They're building up a, a voltage differential between two plates. You've got this moving plate that's in between the two. Any motion that you transfer to that spring will then be transferred to the cylinder and thus the moving plates. They'll move up and down. As they move up and down, that moving plate is going to get closer to the top plate and then further away and closer to the bottom plate and then further away. So as it moves up and down and gets closer and further away from these these uh, fixed plates, it actually affects the capacitive value between the two. This difference in capacitive value is in, is uh, interpreted by the accelerometer as a change in acceleration. And I realize that this is kind of a difficult thing to, to just imagine, that I'm explaining it as best I can, but without the element of uh, visuals, it is pretty tricky. So maybe what I can do is... Um, I'll explain it in an analogy. I love analogies. And uh, it was lunchtime not too long ago here in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm going to talk about sandwich. Imagine a really delicious veggie burger. And they do exist. It's easy to find a bad one, but trust me, the good ones are out there too. Now, imagine you've got a bottom bun sitting on a table. Hovering as if by magic, about two inches above that bun is a veggie patty. And it is, in fact, delicious. But you can't eat it yet because I need it for this analogy. Hovering about two inches above that is the top bun. So you've got some space between the top bun, the veggie patty, and the bottom bun. Now, the two buns are fixed in space and time. Not even the juggernaut himself could move the two buns. They are going to remain in the positions they are in until the universe itself burns out. But the veggie patty can move up and down. It has that freedom of movement. So any motion to the table is going to make that veggie patty either get closer to the top bun or the bottom bun, and that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's very similar with an accelerometer, except instead of a veggie burger, you've got these moving plates and fixed plates. And instead of deliciousness, you have a capacitive value based upon a voltage differential between two plates. Simple, right? Anyway, you have processors that can take that data, that change in the capacitive value, and interpret it as acceleration. And based upon the speed of the change and the magnitude of the change, it can make some guesses as to how much accelerative force is being applied. So... If uh, you've ever used a fitness tracker that could tell the difference between when you were walking versus when you might be typing on a keyboard or when you're jogging down the street, it's because the accelerometer is able to interpret these differences and then present that information in a way that makes sense to you. And it's all about just looking at the math of the difference of that capacitive value, which to me is it's almost akin to magic. I'm about to go all Arthur C. Clarke in here. 
So that's a basic single axis accelerometer. And the same thing is happening inside the sensors on the Fitbit, only we're talking about a much, much, much smaller accelerometer, right? We're talking micro level, not macro level. And again, they don't use single axis accelerometers because that would only detect a change in acceleration along one axis. They use three axis accelerometers. So how are those different? Well, they're not different. You just get three single axis accelerometers and then you orient them so that they have these 90 degree changes so that you've got one that's aligned up and down, one that's aligned left and right, and one that's aligned front to back. And they're all next to each other. And it doesn't, you know, they're not always going to be, this is vertical, this is horizontal, and this is your, your Z axis, because uh, it all depends upon the orientation of the Fitbit itself, right? Sometimes I might have my arm way up in the air, waving it around, as if, in fact, I just did not care. But other times I'm going to be just hauling as fast as I can down the highway while the T-1000 is chasing me down. And the important thing is these accelerometers have to uh, uh, detect that motion no matter what orientation my arm might be in. That's why you go with the three axis. It's much more accurate than a single axis accelerometer. And I love the fact that this technology is built on the basis of motion because it means that you yourself can go out and build an accelerometer if you want to. You can build a simple one, uh, which would really just give you an indication of changes to acceleration based upon the movement of a mass at the end of a spring. But that's technically kind of an accelerometer. It doesn't really give you any value, so I would argue that perhaps you can't really call it an accelerometer. It's almost more of a seismometer, but it's still kind of cool. Uh, but yeah, with, with some springs and a few other pieces of equipment, you could make a macro-sized accelerometer that works on the exact same principle as these very tiny ones that you find in Fitbits. And then you can marvel at the fact that it still works at the micro scale. Go ahead. Marvel. You can actually marvel all the way through the next bit because it's time to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so let's talk about other stuff with the Fitbit. You know, other elements in uh, in the Fitbit uh, handle actual processing of information. So you've got the sensor that's gathering information, the the three axis accelerometer. It's it's pulling info in, but that needs to be processed, right? It's just kind of raw data. It doesn't really have any meaning to it. So. We then have the uh, other processors to kind of turn that into more interesting information that has relevance to us as users. Then you've got the low-energy Bluetooth transmitter, and that is what allows the the Fitbit to communicate with other devices like smartphones and syncing stations, again, synchronization stations. Uh, and they use low energy Bluetooth because, as you would imagine, it doesn't require that much energy to operate. It's sending very small amounts of data. So it's not like it's having to transmit a constant stream of information. It's just little packets of information. So it doesn't take a whole lot of power to do it. And that means that it's less of a drain on battery life because that's really important with a, an activity tracker. You don't, you don't want to have to take it off at the end of every day and recharge it, especially one like the Fitbit that's supposed to also track how well you sleep. If you're supposed to wear it essentially 24 hours until you actually absolutely have to charge it, you want to maximize that battery life. So that was one way they could do it, was using this low-energy Bluetooth approach. And I've talked about low-energy uh, low Bluetooth in other podcasts, so if you want to go back to Tech Stuff archives, you can find me explaining that technology a little bit more. These days, uh, you know, you're more likely to use a smartphone than a synchronized kind of station-type device that plugs in via USB to your computer. You might still do that. Uh, I did that with my old Fitbit, but these days now I just use my smartphone. It, it essentially is the computer in my pocket. So, um, But when they first launched Fitbit, smartphones were not really a big thing yet. Remember, they got together to work on Fitbit in 2007. That's the same year that Apple debuted the iPhone. So to me, that is the beginning of the era of the smartphone age, even though there were other phones that could technically be called smartphones before the iPhone. 
It was the iPhone that captured the public imagination so that people besides just the the tech geeks like myself sat up and said, ooh, that's pretty cool. I want one of those. Now, it was actually that that Bluetooth transmitter that gave them some early problems. If you read review or, or, or interviews with the founders of Fitbit, they'd say that their company nearly died seven times. They had seven different crises that almost killed off their company in that that first year. And one of them was they found that they were having this transmitter problem, that the device wasn't able to sync properly because it wasn't able to transmit information properly. They weren't getting any data off of the, the transmitter. And they found out it was an antenna issue, and they fixed it by putting some foam behind the antenna, like propping it up, which... I can identify with, I'm old enough that I remember when we would get all of our television programming over the air and I was the official, hey, move the antenna a quarter inch to the left so that we can get I Love Lucy on the TV. So I was the piece of foam in my family. Anyway, uh, these were the kind of like kludgy solutions they had to go with early on just to get their, their technology working. But the important thing was it actually did make it work. Now, while their proof of concept was working, they discovered that that $400,000 just was not going to be nearly enough to bring a product to market. They had underestimated how incredibly challenging it is to get into manufacturing. It requires creating a supply chain. You have to figure out who's going to supply the various little components that together make your product. You have to form relationships with the various suppliers of microchips and sensors. You have to figure out what is the form factor of your product going to look like. Like, what is it actually going to, how's the design going to be and who's going to make it? Who's going to cast the molds? Who's going to produce the plastic? Uh, this is where I would talk about China a bit because they had to look at Chinese suppliers. That was one of the ways to keep costs down is that, and that's what a lot of electronics companies do. They look to China to produce the little various components that are then assembled together and then sold in other parts of the world. So they realized that they just did not have the money to go through this whole process they needed more. So they held some more rounds of venture capital fundraising and they raised uh, some quite a bit of money, like more than a couple of million, because by now people were starting to pay attention to what it was they were working on. But really, I think the turning point in that early time happened in September 2008. So they got together in 2007. They started working on their idea. September 2008, they got an opportunity to show off that idea, show off a prototype and explain their sales pitch. And they did an event called TechCrunch 50. Uh, so TechCrunch, they're known for lots of stuff. They, they're great with technology news, but they also are really a, a launch point for startups. They give startups an opportunity to meet with people, to express what it is they are working on, and to try and see if there's any interest or support out there to continue the work. So... TechCrunch 50 was a huge deal for these guys to be involved with it. And they landed a spot in that 2008 event. Now, going into it, they weren't exactly overwhelmed with optimism. In fact, uh, Friedman had said, I don't think more than five people will be stupid enough to give us their credit card. A somewhat cynical statement. And... <laughs> Park wasn't a whole lot better. He said, no, you're wrong. We'll get way more than five. I bet we'll get 50 orders. Five zero. Turned out that uh, they were grossly underestimating the appeal of this Fitbit product. By the end of the day, after they had presented their idea, they had 2,000 pre-orders. These for two guys who had not yet figured out how they were going to produce these these products. They They knew how it was going to work. They had an idea of what it needed to look like, but they did not have a manufacturing process in place yet to produce 2000. It did not help that Park had said that they would have the orders out by Christmas. Now, the first Fitbit trackers, the original product from Fitbit was called the tracker. It was that little clothespin thing that could clip onto a pocket or whatever. They shipped in December 2009. So they presented in September 2008. James Park says, 
they'll be out in time for Christmas. And they shipped December 2009. And James Park said, well, in my defense, I never said which Christmas. Wackety-schmackety-doo. Uh, yeah, he was kind of jokingly saying, yeah, we're a year late, but it, but it came out. And honestly, that delay really illustrates what I was saying earlier, that manufacturing is hard. It is difficult. It's it's something that even big companies struggle with. And these are big companies that have been around for, for decades, and they're in the business of making consumer electronics. It's challenging for them, and they've been doing it for decades. For two guys who had started up this company, it was way more challenging. So once you are able to crack that manufacturing problem, which is, again, a non-trivial task, you can go on to actually do business. And uh, it took them a year longer than what they were anticipating, but they were able to actually ship out the fitness tracker. And as it turned out, it was incredibly popular. They got thousands and thousands of orders, and immediately the value of Fitbit was on the rise. So this was 2009. And it was met with real enthusiasm. Uh, the low-energy electronics meant that the device could go on for several days without ever needing a recharge. Uh, the dashboard side of things, that, that view you would get on your computer or later on your smartphone, meant that the user was given so much information that was relevant to what they were doing, it had a huge appeal. One of the easiest ways to sell anything to anyone is to involve them in the the product itself, right? To say, you are what makes this product special. The way you use it is reflected in the results you get. And so it's all about you. If you want to sell me anything and you tell me it's all about me, you're well ahead of the game. Because I love me. Anyway, on the back end of things, the Fitbit researchers were starting to work on various algorithms to try and turn just a number that says steps into something more meaningful. So you may have noticed if you've ever used an activity tracker that you will get a notification of how many miles you've walked in a day. Well, you can't just base that on the number of steps because your stride is going to be a different length from someone else's stride. If you have someone who's five feet tall and someone else who is six foot six and they both walk 5,000 steps, I guarantee you the six foot six inch tall guy walked further. They took the same number of steps, but the person who is six foot six inch, and I said guy, but honestly, the first person that popped into my head is a woman I know who is very tall. Their stride is longer, so they're going to cover more distance. So, Part of this dashboard experience was users giving information about themselves, like their height, so that the estimations could be more accurate. Someone who's my height, which is five foot eight, is not going to be as walking as far as someone who is six foot six, even if we took the same number of steps. Uh, that was the whole point. So if you want to estimate how many miles you walk, you need to know the height of the person so that you can make that estimation. Also, with calories burning, you'd have to make estimations based upon age and other factors. And in fact, there's so many factors that a lot of people have argued that the calories burned metric that you find in various activity trackers is largely meaningless because it relies on too many unknown variables. It can only really look at things like how much activity did you do that day and how frequently did you do it. But that doesn't necessarily translate to an easy, this is how many calories you burned. That being said, it could help people when they're trying to make general kind of high-level decisions about their diet, their activity levels, that sort of thing. So it really depends on how you look at the products. People who are looking at it as a almost hobbyist way to get into fitness saw value in it. People who were looking at it as saying, you're marketing this more as a medical device, they had a lot of harsh criticism to level at Fitbit for a good reason, because medical devices have to be far more precise, far more accurate than something like an activity tracker. But a lot of people were arguing that these two camps were not talking the same language, and that Fitbit was really aiming itself more toward the hobbyist side than the hardcore medical application side. Now, it didn't hurt the Fitbit's popularity that they happened to have some savvy into social media as well, right? That 
incorporation of the social aspect in Fitbit's business plan really helped a great deal. They incorporated this ability to connect with friends, and you could actually compare how many steps have I taken versus how many steps has Matt Frederick taken versus how many steps has Ben Bolin taken, that kind of thing. And uh, by comparing them, you could end up either thinking, oh, I need to get another 2,000 steps in because i got to beat this guy. Or maybe you're thinking, Haha, I'm way more active than those slugabeds. And it created also a competitive element to Fitbit that they weren't necessarily anticipating when they first started to implement these social uh, uh, features in the Fitbit product. But they realized that that competitive element drove people to use Fitbit more and to become kind of Fitbit evangelists because they were getting out, they were doing things, they wanted to earn steps. Anyone who's had an activity tracker, I guarantee you at some point in their lives, they have said, I don't even know why I walked. I wasn't wearing my tracker. They didn't count. Like somehow those steps don't count unless they're being quantified by the activity tracker. Well, that's great news for a company like Fitbit because it means that people need the product or they at least think they need the product that Fitbit is selling. And uh, that social element would actually come to be a problem a little bit later. I'll mention that when we get there. It's saucy. By the way, in case you're wondering, uh, I am on the top of my Fitbit friends list um, by about 15,000 steps per week. But to be fair, I also walk to and from work and I live several miles away from the office. So it's a necessity. I don't drive, so that helps me with my steps. It's not like I am super physically active compared to the people on my list. It's a matter of necessity for me. All right, you know what? Let's take a moment to talk about the awkwardness of social connectivity. You see, one of the things Fitbit also allowed you to do is create an exercise diary because the Fitbit was really good at detecting when you were walking or when you were jogging, but a lot of the Fitbits weren't waterproof, so you couldn't uh, track your, your activity when you were swimming. Many of them couldn't really tell what was going on if you were doing exercises in a gym. Like, let's say you're getting on the elliptical. They might not be able to track that mo movement. So the exercise diary feature on your dashboard allowed you to enter other activities, get an estimation of how many calories you burned doing those activities, and then you would factor all of that in for your end-of-the-day report, saying, here's how many calories you burned today. Fitbit set that as a default shared setting, meaning that if you were creating an exercise diary and you had not changed the default, you were sharing all of that information to the general public. You might say, like, I got on the elliptical for 25 minutes and I burned this many calories. And anyone who looks at your profile could see that. But people were putting in all sorts of different entries in their exercise diaries, including times when they were uh, getting a little romantic, getting a little... Uh, Intimate, getting busy, in other words. Yeah, people were putting down sex as an activity in these exercise diaries and getting estimations for how many calories they burned during those activities, not necessarily realizing that by default, this was being shared to everyone out there. So in 2011, this information kind of got spread around. A lot of blogs had fun with it. They talked about how... Fitbit was inadvertently sharing people's sex lives to anyone who was interested. And it was at that point that Fitbit decided to change that particular policy and set the default to private instead of public. And at that point, we no longer saw tons of people sharing their sex lives unknowingly. If they did, they were doing it because they went in and changed the setting to public from private. Oh, Fitbit even went an extra step. They actually contacted search engines and they asked for the past diary entries to be removed from search engine indexes. So that way you couldn't just search someone's Fitbit profile and use the search results to go back to an archive diary entry that you're not supposed to see. So they did take some steps to correct this problem. It was a problem that they had created by making that default public, but it was also a problem that users created by putting in other activities on that exercise stuff. Uh, but yeah, that was a little awkward. So Fitbit um, learned the hard way that getting into that social game is a little tricky 
kind of the same thing as uh, getting into manufacturing is a little tricky. After all that, the team was going back to work on developing new types of Fitbit trackers. Now, I'm not going to go into every single product that they've made because that would be silly. Uh, there are a lot of them that haven't been sold for years. They got replaced by later models. Uh, they're, they're all various uh, variations, I should say, on that initial fitness tracker. Some have more components to them. But ultimately, they they all work in a very similar way. So it doesn't make sense for me to go into all the different types. Again, this isn't a commercial for Fitbit. This is just a episode talking about the, the company and their technology and how it works. So uh, I will talk a little bit about some of the other components that are in Fitbit devices. So the Fitbit tracker, that was their first device. One of the next ones they had was the Fitbit Ultra which was kind of an updated version of the tracker. And one of the things it added was an altimeter. Uh, and an altimeter is uh, something that measures altitude or distance vertically, right? The difference in vertical distance between the altimeter and some fixed object, which typically is the ground, right? Sea level or at least ground level. And the way it works is it doesn't measure directly the distance between its vertical position and the ground. It measures altitude by looking at something related but different, atmospheric pressure. Now we're going to go into some basic science time. And I know most of you are familiar with this, but, you know, I always like to have a little refresher. The atmosphere that we breathe, it has weight to it, right? It's a fluid. And typically we're at the bottom of it because we're on ground level or somewhere close to it. Not all the time, obviously, but frequently. So if you ever felt that you're constantly under pressure, you kind of are, at least from the atmosphere, but it's good because if you weren't, we wouldn't be able to breathe and you would die. So sometimes pressure is good is what I'm saying. As you climb in elevation, as you move up a ladder go up some stairs, climb a mountain, get in an airplane, you end up having less of this fluid above you than you did before, right? Some of that fluid's now below you. The weight has decreased as you go up because you have less atmosphere overhead. It makes sense, right? There's less pressing down on you, so there's less weight. Now, if you go far enough, like you climb a tall mountain, the pressure changes can be enough to actually have a physical effect on you. Most of the time, it's so subtle that we cannot detect it by ourselves. We would have to have some sort of sensitive instrument in order to detect that change. It's also why modern jets are pressurized, because if they were unpressurized, traveling at 30,000 feet, the atmosphere would be so thin that it would be not, not, not fun times. Very not fun times. So you pressurize the interior of your plane for a couple of reasons. One, to make breathing easier. Two, you don't want your eardrums to blow out suddenly. Um, so uh, it's really important. Same thing is true for people who are climbing mountains. Often you are told that you have to acclimate to air pressure at certain stages of tall mountains. Otherwise, you run at the risk of getting sick from altitude sickness. Well, altimeters detect air pressure and changes in air pressure. And they track things like how many stairs you've climbed by detecting those changes in air pressure. The altimeter sensor on a Fitbit is sensitive enough to detect when you have changed 10 feet in elevation, whether you're going 10 feet up or 10 feet down. But it only counts stairs climbed if you're going up. So in other words, if the atmospheric pressure is decreasing, to the point that the Fitbit says, oh, this guy's gone 10 feet up. They've climbed some stairs. Uh, but if it increases, indicating that you're moving downward, it doesn't count it as stairs climbed. And that's largely because if you're going downstairs, you don't have to exert as much energy as you would if you're climbing upstairs. So really, you should only be interested in how many stairs did you climb, not how many stairs did you descend. That's why it doesn't count it if you're going down. Uh, I've noticed that that my Fitbit 
uh, will sometimes detect a hill as a set of stairs. So a Fitbit tries to determine whether you're climbing stairs versus walking up an inclined path by combining the data from the altimeter, so how much change in elevation have you experienced, with the actual motion data from the three-axis accelerometers, uh, which tell it how frequently you're moving your arms and can kind of, with the combined data, suss out whether or not you're walking upstairs or you're going up a, a pathway. But it turns out it's not an exact science. So, for example, yesterday it told me that I climbed 75 flights of stairs. I definitely did not climb 75 flights of stairs yesterday, but I did walk up a lot of hills. So that that's the uh you know kind of subtlety that it can't quite tell the difference between if you were to map fitbit data against a map like literally pair a map with the fitbit data in a way for it to take into account the geography maybe then it would say all right well you didn't walk up 75 flights of stairs but you did climb this amount of elevation in this amount of time Later still, Fitbit introduced some heart rate monitors in some of its products, and you might want to know, how does that work? For example, uh, the the one I have is a Charge 2. It's got a heart rate monitor on it. So how does this thing that I wear on my wrist tell how frequently my heart beats? All right, so it does this through... Oh, good grief, this is going to be a slaughter. All right, it does this through a process called Photoplethysmography, also known as PPG, which is how I'm going to refer to it for the rest of this discussion, because I think I might be able to say photoplethysmography correctly twice in my entire life, and uh, I think I just did, so game over, man. All right, so human blood, as I'm sure most of you are aware, is red, right? Well, red stuff reflects red light. And it absorbs green light really well. So anything that's red gets reflected off of red stuff. Anything that's green gets absorbed by red stuff. So devices like the Fitbit Charge 2 pair a couple of light emitters that are pulsing green light with a sensor that detects reflected green light. And that's how it's able to tell how much light is being reflected or absorbed by your blood. So... It's positioned over little blood veins in your arm. And whenever it detects that a lot of light is being absorbed, it's saying, oh, blood is flowing through the vein right now. Whenever it detects a lot of light is being reflected, it says, oh, blood is not flowing through that vein right now. And by counting the number of times that this absorption and reflection pattern goes within a minute, it gives you your heart rate. That's how it works. It's kind of cool. It's not foolproof. Uh, to detect heartbeats this way, a device has to be fairly secure against the skin. Uh, so when you exercise, you tend to move around a lot. At least that's what I'm led to understand. Uh, I'm someone who walks a lot, but I haven't really jumped into that full exercise schedule. So I'm only speaking from secondhand experience at this point. But if you're doing a lot of vigorous weightlifting or running or something, a wrist-mounted activity tracker is probably going to slide around a lot. And that means it's more difficult to get an accurate reading on the heart rate. Um, and that actually has caused some real issues. It actually could be potentially dangerous. Uh, some people really push themselves very hard when they're working out. They're trying to get their heart at a peak level for a certain amount of time. Um, particularly people who are really trying to push their performance. And they need to know if their heart rate is exceeding safe parameters. If it's at peak for too long, they could actually suffer some serious health problems. So Fitbit and other activity company, tracker companies have come under fire from some healthcare professionals who have said, you're marketing a product with certain claims that could lead someone to believe they have a level of precision akin to a medical device. But you haven't submitted your products to the kind of testing, the rigorous testing that medical devices have to go through in order to be certified as being that kind of accurate. And uh, again, it becomes this this war of words with activity tracker companies saying this is something to help people with fitness issues, but it's not marketed as a medical device and the medical industry saying, yeah, but people are kind of treating it that way. So there's a level of responsibility you need to take. And it's kind of a back and forth. 
Now, by measuring a user's heart rate, Fitbit can also make a little bit more of an educated guess as to how many calories that person is burning in a day. And you probably heard about the various ranges of heart rates that indicate whether you're in a fat-burning mode, which is slightly elevated, or if you're in a cardiovascular exercise mode, which is a, a range beyond that, or if you're in peak mode, which is that other level I was talking about, or if you're just resting. And this is actually a pretty tricky area itself, even outside of the technology sphere. There are a lot of people who argue exactly where that range should be and how accurate it is or whether it's accurate at all or what does it mean or is it meaningful. Uh, and I'm not going to get into that because it doesn't really have anything to do with the technology. But it does show that this is another area where there's a lot of disagreement about what is the actual right way to go forward. Uh, but Fitbit will combine information from all these different accelerometers and altimeter and heart rate sensors in order to give you an idea of how many calories you have burned throughout the day, even though that might not be uh, absolutely 100% accurate. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the company side of Fitbit, now that we've covered the technology side quite a bit, in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, let's go back to talk about the company a little bit and uh, how Fitbit has performed through all of this. So shortly after Fitbit took off, activity trackers became a huge deal in the electronics industry. And Fitbit enjoyed a great amount of success very early on. They focused on uh, creating those products that were feeling, filling a niche between like $99 and $200 really like the 130 to 150 dollar range was their their playground and that also meant that they were avoiding the problems of creating higher priced luxury items that that some electronics fans were balking at they also decided early that they were not going to get into smartwatches right away which ended up being a smart decision because a lot of people were out there trying to to create smartwatches and no one was really sure what a smartwatch should be or what it should do, apart from tell the time. And I'm sure some of them were even wondering if it should do that. Now, Fitbit did include stuff like a watch and some of its models. So there were models after the Fitbit tracker that had a clock element to them. But you would say that it was a clock on a activity tracker, not that it was a watch that also tracked activity. So a very different approach, not something that the smartwatch companies were really going after. Then they started adding other features like you could get notifications on certain Fitbit devices. So when you paired it with a phone, if a notification came through on your phone, you might get an alert on your Fitbit. So you might miss it if your phone's in your pocket, but then your wrist vibrates and you take a look and you see, oh, someone's texting me or I just got an email or whatever it might be, or I've got a calendar event coming up that I should pay attention to. Then Fitbit eventually did release a smartwatch. They released it in 2016, and it's called the Fitbit Blaze. And that was really the first attempt of Fitbit to take aim at the smartwatch industry. But at that point, they were already saying, we want to wait to see how other companies do it and see what's working and what's not working before we attempt to do it ourselves because right now everyone's arguing over what a smartwatch should even be. So why would we make something if we're not even sure that that particular form factor is going to ever work out? So they did launch the Blaze last year. Uh, I know that they were very proud of it, but kind of surprised that the market didn't immediately respond in a very positive way. I mean, the, the reviews were pretty good, but the market itself didn't respond in a very enthusiastic way. And that frustrated people over at Fitbit. And I think largely that's, again, because even as consumers, we aren't really sure what a smartwatch should be. Like, what is the thing about a smartwatch that's going to make it so useful that you absolutely have to have it? Uh, unless you're an iPhone Apple fan, in which case you probably buy an Apple smartwatch because it had Apple on it. Burn. Back in 2015... Fitbit launched its initial public offering, its IPO. In other words, this is the process where a privately held company switches over to a publicly traded company. 
It's where you issue stock and people can go and buy stock in your company. Before the stocks went on the market, before they were going to be traded, they were initially valued at $20 a share. That was before trading began. But once trading began, the value actually shot up very quickly. The actual opening price was $30.40. The company ended up getting a valuation of $4.1 billion. You essentially multiply the number of shares by the share price. That gives you a rough idea of the valuation. $4.1 billion. James Park received the honor of being named one of Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40, In 2015, he was 39 at the time, a year younger than me. Can't lie to you, uh, this one hurts a bit. I'm sure that in 2014, I was like seriously considered for inclusion in the 40 under 40, but I probably missed it by that much. But seriously, though, uh, it was another indicator that Park and Friedman had been on the very tip of the spear that was activity trackers, that they had led that charge well. And this was also around the time that activity trackers began to dominate entire sections of the showroom floor at CES every year. There's an entire area that's just activity trackers, and it's enormous. Traditional companies and startups alike were getting into the game, and the space became really highly competitive. Fitbit was benefiting from the fact that they had been in the market since it first started, but It's also important to mention Fitbit. It's not like they were the first activity tracker of all time, but they were early enough and popular enough to become kind of the defining name in the space for a lot of people. Now, there's another challenge that all activity companies have to face. Not only is there a lot of competition out there, but there's also the problem of convincing customers to buy an activity tracker if they already own an activity tracker. So it's not just competition, but also market saturation. Activity trackers are designed to last a pretty good long while. If they died out super fast, people would be very irritated with them. So you think about, you know, that whole planned obsolescence idea, that strategy of let's make something that within a couple of years you absolutely have to replace because it will be obsolete. Doesn't really work so well with activity trackers. A lot of people feel that as long as it's still working, it's good enough for them. So, That means it gets harder and harder to sell more of your products. There are more people selling, so you've got a lot of competition, and a lot of your your target customers already own one, so it's hard to convince them to go and buy a new one. That means that, and make it even more complicated, not just activity trackers, smartwatches too, right? If you've gone in and you've bought a smartwatch that happens to have some activity tracking capabilities as well as being a smartwatch, That's even less reason for you to go out and buy another activity tracker. So not only was Fitbit competing against other activity trackers, but also all the smartwatch companies that were building in those. Let's even go even more complicated. Smartphones now can act as activity trackers. A lot of smartphones have a built-in app that will count steps and maybe even do things like map how many steps you've made against a physical map or tell you how much you've changed in altitude across the day based upon where you went. All of these different things are direct competitors or indirect competitors with activity trackers, which meant that Fitbit was facing more and more pressures from outside of its own company and had to figure out ways to remain relevant and compelling to customers. Part of that was, again, aiming at people who didn't want to spend $400, $500 for a smartwatch. Maybe they'd spend $100 or $130 for an activity tracker, especially one that had enough features in it to set it apart from just a pedometer. But it does mean that you're constantly having to reinvent yourself and find ways of making products that are interesting and useful and intuitive. And not everything has gone smoothly. In 2014, the company had to issue a recall of the Fitbit Force, which was one of the activity trackers that uh, that you would wear using a wristband. In fact, most of Fitbit's trackers use a wristband, but not all of them. This was one of them. There were quite a few people who reported that they were having problems, like skin issues, after wearing the wristband, that it was causing them to break out in a rash or sometimes worse, into blisters. In fact... 
it got so bad that according to some reports, more than 9,000 people said they were having issues with more than 250 of them saying that it was blistering. And so eventually the company issued a recall and discontinued the product and refunded people their money for buying it because uh, of these these problems. Now, the likely reason behind all this was that the wristband had some components in it that were made out of nickel. And a lot of people have an allergy, a skin allergy to nickel. Uh, they can contract dermatitis if their skin is in contact with nickel for too long. Uh, I'm one of those people. I didn't find out through an activity tracker. I actually found out because I had a silver-plated ring, and the the thing that the silver was plating was a nickel core, right? It was a ring with a nickel core, but silver plating. And eventually the silver on the inside of the ring wore off enough where the nickel was making contact with my skin, and it was a wideband ring, and I started having this terrible reaction. So if I had bought one of those Fitbits, I would have been one of the people who had that that same issue, that skin irritation. Uh, it is not fun. And that did not do the, the company any favors, although the fact that they did issue a recall was the right thing to do. Um, but it was it was not a great publicity move to have something that gives your customers blisters all over their wrists. And then there's also been some legal battles. There was a couple of legal battles with Jawbone, which also makes activity trackers. And Jawbone at one point alleged that Fitbit had stole, stolen corporate secrets from Jawbone, that they were stealing patented work. And so they sued Fitbit. Uh, later on, a court actually overturned the patents in question. So there was no foundation anymore for the lawsuit because the thing that had been a patented idea, the, the patented invention, the patent was invalidated. So there was no longer any legal claim for that. That particular lawsuit faded away. In October 2016, James Park uh, appeared on the program Mad Money to say the company as a whole was going to change direction. And it was going to transition from what he called a consumer electronics company to a digital healthcare company. And he went on to say that the social aspect of what the company was doing would become more important in the future. Now, this may have been in response to a really rough year on the market in 2016. Fitbit saw their stock price drop steadily throughout the entire year. Uh, the high price for a Fitbit stock over the last 52 weeks was $18.43. Remember, it was initially valued at $20 before it opened on trading back when they first went public. It went up to $30.40 the, that day. And now it's down to less than, much less than that. Actually, today, which is March 24th, 2017, I checked the stock price, and when I checked it, it was $5.37. So pretty massive fall-off in stock price. The appearance on Mad Money was interesting, and that Park said that Fitbit could help employers save money on providing health care plans for employees. And he cited a third-party study that suggested employees who opted into a Fitbit wellness plan would cost employers 25% less than employees who did not enter the Fitbit wellness plan. So perhaps the future of Fitbit is really in designing corporate wellness initiatives and the hardware will just kind of supplement that. And they've also been on an acquisition tear recently. You may say that uh, that Fitbit essentially raided Pebble because it wasn't so it wasn't like a a standard acquisition. It was acquiring very specific parts of Pebble and taking just the parts they wanted. Pebble, by the way, in case you don't know, it's a company that was known for making relatively simple uh, but interesting smartwatches. And it got started originally as a crowdfunding campaign. And the smartwatches use an e-paper display so that they're very low power. Uh, and they were able to give you notifications from your phone, that kind of stuff. Fitbit bought out Pebble's software assets for less than $40 million, according to Bloomberg Technology. Now, sadly, Pebble as a company actually had more than $40 million in debts. So they didn't even get as much as they needed in order to pay off their debts in this case. And Pebble had found that it was very difficult to thrive in a crowded marketplace. 
And it didn't help that you still have a significant population of people who aren't even convinced that smartwatches are an interesting thing to buy in the first place. So according to Bloomberg, Fitbit sent job offers to about 40% of Pebble's workforce, meaning 60% did not get an offer to work at Fitbit. And as someone who owns a Kickstarter edition Pebble watch, this whole thing made me very sad. Not just because my watch would no longer be supported, but I really thought Pebble was something special. And there were a lot of folks who were eagerly anticipating Pebble's next product, and they were very dismayed to learn it will never come, but such is business. In January 2017, Fitbit acquired a, another smartwatch group, uh, a company that had started up just in March 2016 called Vector. So it wasn't even a year old when Fitbit came in and acquired it. Vector's market was to create what they called affordable luxury smartwatches. So their designs kind of harken back to classic European luxury watches, but at a lower cost. And they're smartwatches, not your typical quartz crystal action watches. And like Pebble, the acquisition appears to have been a bid for the software developer talent. The founder of Vector, named Andre Pitas, said as much, said that the company was acquired for its software platform and for its design team. So does that mean that Fitbit will soon produce luxury smartwatches? Probably not. Uh, they may set all of these assets to work on creating those digital healthcare solutions that I mentioned earlier. And I suspect we'll continue to see Fitbit produce activity trackers and sensors, but that these will fit into a larger package of healthcare solutions. So that way, Fitbit can continue to set itself apart from all the competing activity trackers companies out there. They're not just selling activity trackers, they're selling health itself. That's me saying that, not Fitbit. And who knows, maybe in 2018, we will see some luxury smartwatch activity trackers from Fitbit, and maybe they'll become the must-have fashion accessory of 2018. I I wouldn't be shocked to see it happen, and I might even save up for one, because I like, I like looking all flash while tracking my steps, but we'll see. And that's all I've got on Fitbit right now. I could have talked a little bit more about some other elements, like there was a time where uh, Apple sold Fitbit products in its Apple store, and then there was a very famous time when they said they would stop doing that. But, you know, honestly, that story is not as interesting as it first sounds when you hear the, the connotation there. And besides, i got to save something for future episodes now that I'm going to twice a week again. So I hope you guys enjoyed this glimpse into the company Fitbit and the explanation of how that technology works. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you should let me know. Send me a note. Uh, you can send me an email at the address techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can always contact me through Facebook or Twitter. I use the social handle techstuffhsw for the show at both locations. If you really want to, you can join me for a live chat. I live stream now. People are watching me say this at the moment. I'm looking right into their little eyes. But yeah, you can join me on twitch.tv slash techstuff, and you can watch me stream live. It also means you get to listen to the episode a couple of weeks before it even comes out. And you get to hear me make mistakes and stuff which hopefully you don't hear in the published podcasts because Dylan fixes those. All right, that's it. I'm done. I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 